God? Did you notice it as you were going through Luke's gospel? How many times Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God? This is about the reign and rule of Yahweh. This is about the age to come, which was mentioned in a previous slide, breaking into the present. Jesus is saying it's, it's coming and it's arrived in some sense. Jesus is talking about the government of God, which has economic, social and political implications. Terrace J. Ryan in his excellent book, Jesus Christ Peacemaker, says this. The central teaching in consuming passion of Jesus is the kingdom of God, a profoundly political term that calls people to face the problems of the world, not despair from it or flee from it. There's a few examples on the screen here. In Mark's gospel, Jesus begins, his opening line is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus encourages in Luke 8 and other um, sorry, in Luke 8, it says this, Jesus went on throughout the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is proclaiming and he's enacting. He's telling and also he's showing. Uh, the kingdom of God is a multifaceted symbol which relates to the covenantal story of Israel in which God will act in history to bring about the age to come. The kingdom of God isn't the hope of heaven when you die, although we do have a glorious hope. Um, nor is the kingdom of God to be equated with the church. Uh, one hopes that there's some overlap between the church and the kingdom of God, but they're not identical. Rather, the kingdom of God is the dream and hope that the values, culture and life of the coming age would break into the present into all spheres of life, including the political, social and economic. In Jesus, the kingdom is not just proclaimed, it is enacted. In Jesus, the kingdom is inaugurated and in his glorious return, it will be consummated. We pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done, because this world and Jesus' world is not the way it was meant to be. We may say that the kingdom is the opposite of what breaks God's heart. In a world of guilt, the kingdom is forgiveness. In a world of violence, the kingdom is shalom. In a world of marginalisation of the poor, Jesus welcomes the weak, gathers the oppressed. And in a world of loneliness, the kingdom is community. But in all these aspects, the kingdom is in and through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom, which is a deeply political concept, is thus both an invitation and a challenge. It's an invitation for all to participate and perform with fresh hope and imagination. However, it's also a challenge to oppressive forces of domination and injustice. So let me advance this kingdom hypothesis a little bit more. Um, we'll go to Jesus in a second, but just as a little prelude to that, let's just check out Mary's song, The Magnificat, which is, you know, Mary singing this song of praise, almost as if she can just taste the kingdom, that it's, it's here right and now. 
and it has great social and, and political consequences. Uh, Katie, can you just, to, to give me a break, let me have a drink of water, can you just read that if you can read it on the screen? Absolutely. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's song, the Magnificat, points to the great reversal which the kingdom will bring. Notice how it's 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 marinated marinated in in the in the story of Israel. This is a covenantal story of God coming to act for His people. But in it, you see uh, verse uh, fifty-two that it addresses power. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. It addresses destitution. He has filled the hungry with good things. It addresses wealth and the rich he has sent empty away. It seems that Mary's song, where she's, she's tasting this, this, this arrival of the age to come, which isn't about going to heaven when you die. It's about, in a sense, heaven coming down to earth. That the one who is born, the one who is going to be born, is an agent of radical social change. That's the preamble. And then we get in Luke's gospel to Jesus's opening words. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus' opening words are, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. When Luke's writing, he very likely in front of him has a copy of Mark's gospel. And he's not disagreeing with it, but as he reads those words, kingdom of God, he's probably saying, you know what? I'm going to tell my readers a little bit more about this kingdom. I'm going to bring in the story of Jesus when he is at the synagogue. And it's this story. Um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Where Jesus unrolls the scroll and speaks these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus here is speaking positive and hope-filled words to those who are at the, the bottom end of the onion, which is most people, those who are the victims of exploitation. Elsewhere, Jesus speaks uncomfortable words to those who have been the winners in the structure of domination. And when I hear these words, I feel uncomfortable. But these are the words of Jesus. Let me read them to you. Jesus says, woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. 
He tells the rich young ruler, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Rabbi Jesus, who himself had nowhere to lay his head, says, do not store up for yourselves riches here on earth. And in Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus says, how, are, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This isn't Marxism, leftism, socialism or communism. These are the words of Jesus. And in Luke 4, Jesus isn't addressing those who have been the winners. He's speaking words which would offer comfort to those who have been the losers. If Jesus was a politician, this would be his manifesto. If Jesus were president, this would have been an outline of his policies. This kingdom manifesto, when Jesus reads this, he then says it's been fulfilled. And the kingdom includes good news to the poor, freedom to the impressed. It includes healing. But note it also says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Most commentators rightly point out that Jesus here is drawing on Isaiah. But that Isaiah is drawing on the Jubilee traditions, which can be found in Leviticus chapter 25. What I'd like you to do now, if you've got a Bible, is open up Leviticus 25. You may not be able to read all of it. You know, it's quite, it depends on your speed of reading. Um, as you read Levit Leviticus 25, particularly from verse 8 onwards, why don't you put some stuff in the chat function which you think may be of interest to us as we're talking about a world of uh, the radical economic message of Jesus. So anything you spot in Leviticus 25, just stick in the chat function. Right, just pause your reading there. If you've got a comment, just uh, put it in there. Um, obviously, after this session, if you're thinking that what I'm saying now, summarising that, oh, I didn't quite see that, you can go back over the passage 
uh, yourself. Uh, Gordon Wenham, um, uh, whose brother was my uh, uh, research supervisor when I was training at, at Trinity, but Gordon Wenham, Old Testament scholar, he says this about these laws. The main purpose of these laws is to prevent the utter ruin of debtors. In biblical times, a man who incurred a debt that he could not repay could be forced to sell off his land or even his personal freedom by becoming a slave. When left unchecked, this process led to great social division with a class of rich landowners exploiting a mass of landless serfs. And so that you have these laws in Leviticus uh, chapter 25. On the seventh Sabbath, meaning every 49 years or 50 years, scholars are a little bit in debate about when you start the year, um, Israel was instructed to shout, uh, sound a trumpet on the Day of Atonement, declare liberty, release, because it's now the year of Jubilee. And during the, during the Jubilee, three things would happen. One, there would be rest for the land. Rest for the land. You wouldn't work the land. Um, what we found in modern agriculture is that if you overwork the land and you keep on using it and it doesn't rest, it degrades. Even back before with all the science we've got, there's these laws saying that the land should itself uh, rest. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, secondly, there should be a return of property. So if someone got into debt in sort of Bible times, they would sell the land that was allotted to them by Yahweh. They might sell it. But every 50 years, there would be... a a reset you get that the person who originally had the land would get it back it would be a time of a cancellation of debt the redistribution of land prevented the accumulation of capital in the hands of a few three so the first thing was a uh, land resting secondly return of property uh, Thirdly, freedom for those who have become debt slaves. Uh, debt slaves, as the name implies, were individuals who sold themselves into slavery. So this isn't the same as chattel uh, slavery or the Atlantic slave trade. It's a different type of slavery where someone's in debt would sell themselves to the, the person they owed the money to. But every 50 years it would be cancelled, returned land. So there'd be, there'd be no generational um, uh, debt slaves. Gordon Wenham also says this, the Jubilee was intended to prevent the accumulation of wealth of the nation in the hands of the very few. Every Israelite had an, an inalienable right to his family land and to his freedom. If he lost them through falling into debt, he recovered them in the Jubilee. The biblical law is opposed equally to the monopolist, monopolistic tendencies of unbridled capitalism and foregoing com communism, where all property is in state hands. By keeping land within a particular family, the Jubilee also promoted family unity. Now, this was never put into practice. Um, Zedekiah, Judah's last king, there was a threat of invasion and he announced basically we're going to have a jubilee. Uh, 
the invasion uh, passed. We were okay for a while, but then he never fulfilled his promises. That's what made uh, Jeremiah extremely mad that the king hadn't kept to his jubilee uh, promises. But within Judaism, the jubilee became part of an eschatological hope. One day, one day, there will be a jubilee and no longer will we live in a time of economic exploitation. So back to Jesus, his opening sermon. It's no wonder after the sermon, some people try to throw him off a cliff. It's no wonder that lots of the poor people loved Jesus because he has an economic vision which um, talks about the redistribution of wealth. It's an economic reset. The kingdom, therefore, has social, political and economic aspects. A time when debt is cancelled and any land which has been bought and sold in the last 50 years will be returned to its owner. It seems that Jesus is saying that the kingdom has an explicit economic aspect in which wealth is to be redistributed. And I've said that sentence a few times, but really important point, isn't it? That Jesus has this economic vision in our own day. Much of the wealth of nations and individuals have been accumulated over generations, sometimes being linked to colonialism, slavery and unethical exploitation. The rich get richer over generations. But Jesus declares a jubilee. The activist Jesus is advocated, advocating an economic system which puts him on a crash course with the powers and rulers of his age. Jesus is radical. Let me look at two different versions of understanding the jubilee by, I'm going to say contemporary scholars, although one, um, one has died. First one is... Andre Trockmere. What a, if you don't know about Andre Trockmere, write the name down and do a little Google search for him afterwards. He was a, a pastor at a Protestant village in France when the Nazis arrived and he encouraged, encouraged his congregation and village to uh, create a haven for Jews fleeing the Nazis. And he ended up going into a um, it wasn't a concentration camp, but a kind of a discipline camp. But he remained faithful to Jesus. And when he, in the Second World War was over, he wrote a book called Jesus and the Nonviolent Revolution, which is still very, even though it's translated from French and it's a little bit old, still very readable. And he says this, Jesus's revolution drew its strength from God's liberating justice. By proclaiming the Jubilee, Jesus wanted to bring about a total social transformation with an eye to the future, yet based on the vision of justice God had already set forth in the past. When Jesus proclaimed good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and sight to the blind, his audience knew very well what he meant. Now is the time to put into effect the year of Jubilee. Jesus' speech in Nazareth was no sermon of religious platitudes. He was announcing a social revolution was underway. The messianic reign had begun. For the poor, this was good news. All things would be made right again. For those whose interests were vested in the establishment, however, such news was a threat. So Chuck may hear you saying that Jesus has brought an economic revolution, in a sense, to the, uh, to, to the nation as such. Tom Wright does something a little bit different in his groundbreaking book, Jesus and the Victory of God. 
and, and I'll just jump into the middle bit of this quote where it says, he expected his followers to live by the Jubilee principle. So rather than we're going to change the, the nation's economic system, actually, with my merry band of followers, we're going to live in a counter cultural way in how we do economics amongst us. Notice the last bit of Tom Wright's quote where he says, this may help to explain the remarkable practice within the early church whereby resources were pooled. Where did you find that? The beginning of Acts. Luke wrote two books, the book of Luke and the look of Acts. And the beginning of both of them are, is a message of wealth redistribution. That's Trockmere and uh, right. And one final quote before we'll bring in some comments. Um, this is from a book that I just happened to be reading last week. Didn't think it was to do would bring up the Jubilee, but it mentioned it. It's by a, a real sort of uh, first rate uh, scholar uh, called Michael Bird. And he says this, whether you like it or not, this is the one part of the Bible where you must admit that the liberation theologians are onto something. Jesus does not read from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the affluent middle classes who want enough religion to make them feel secure with God, but nothing too cumbersome that is going to unsettle their consumeristic and hyper-individualistic way of life. Jesus speaks of Isianic salvation in terms of God's liberating the poor, the oppressed, the blind and the captive. The idea taps into the Jewish notion of Jubilee from Leviticus 25 with the remission of debts and the freeing of slaves. I'll let you read the rest of that quote later. So where have we got to so far today? Well, we've talked about that we live in a world of escalating violence and economic exploitation. We talked about colonialism, about the... Um, uh, wealth being accumulated in certain parts of the world, that even now as we enter into climate breakdown, the wealthier nations with the most consumeristic lifestyles, in a sense, are the winners. And those who have least contributed to carbon emissions are the ones who are going to suffer the most. We then went into Jesus's world to see that he lived in a world of escalating violence. Um, and he lived in a world of economic exploitation but that there was this story about the breaking in of the new age. As we've looked at the Gospels themselves, we see Jesus proclaims the kingdom. And then we've looked at one aspect of that, where Jesus seems to be drawing in from Leviticus 25, this radical economic vision. Why is it that I was only coming across, I'm 43 now, why is it? that it's only in my late 30s, early 40s, that I'm seeing this. It seems as if this message, um, which is mainstream in scholarship as we look at it, isn't brought into the church. We've made something different of the kingdom, but it has social, political and economic implications. Katie, I don't think we've got time to go into Zoom groups, but can you encourage comments and questions?